0: Part One of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. From The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines by Mary Cowden Clarke. Part One. O Rose of May, dear maid, kind sister, sweet Ophelia! HAMLET The babe lay on the nurse's knee. Could any impression have been received through those wide-stretched eyes, that stared as wonderingly as if they were in fact beholding, amazed, the new existence upon which they had so lately opened?—The child would have seen that it lay in a spacious apartment, furnished with all the tokens of wealth and magnificence, which those ruder ages could command. There were thick hangings of costly stuff, to exclude the keen outer air and chill mists of that north climate. The furniture of the room was constructed of the rare kind of woods, and fashioned with the utmost skill and taste in design then attained. The dogs that sustained the fir-clumps blazing on the hearth, were of classical form and device and the andirons, on either side, were of a no less precious material than silver. The sconces round the apartment were of the same metal, while the spoon, cup, and other utensils appropriated to the infant's use were of gold. Could any dawning sense of external objects yet have made its way to the brain through those wide-stretched violet eyes? They might have noted that a tall figure, of graceful mien, of gracious aspect, frequently came to bend over, utter murmured words of joy and tenderness, and breathe mother's blessings upon the little baby head. They might have perceived that another figure of less gentle aspect, but kindly and fond, would come to look upon the little daughter lately vouchsafed to him, and that still another, a young boy, would advance on tiptoe to peep at and touch very carefully the strange baby sister. Of the large, broad, good-humoured face that more constantly hung over it, of the huge, splay hand that enclosed its own diminutive one in the recesses of the crummy palm, of the white amplitude of warmth and softness and comfort and repose, against which the babe buried its nose and nestled its cheek, and from which it drew forth delicious streams of nourishment, the wide-stretched violet eyes probably gained clearer perception for they learned to look eagerly for these evidences of the presence, and the ministry of the good peasant-woman, who had been engaged to perform the office of wet-nurse and foster-mother to the little Ophelia, daughter of the lord Polonius, and of the lady Oudra. There were extensive gardens belonging to the nobleman's house, and in these the good nurse Batilda would carry her baby charge up and down, during the more genial hours of the day while by the side of child and nurse gambled the young boy, Laertes. When the violet eyes learned to distinguish objects upon which they rested, they grew fond of dwelling upon the lively brother, of following his antics, of watching his sports. And then Baby would crow and spring, and leap in the nurse's arms with sympathetic delight at his active movements when the sun faded from the gravel paths and the shadows lengthened, and the watchful nurse knew that the mists and dews of evening were stealing on, to take the place of the earlier afternoon warmth, she would carry her nursling indoors, and lull it to sleep upon her lap, and hush it against her bosom, crooning ends of old-world ditties, and scraps of antique ballads, such as she knew. The Lady Udra's attendant, Krakka, one day saw fit to call the rustic nurse to account for the subject of one of these songs, which struck her town-bred notions as something lacking in the matter of decorum. "'Hast thou no a cradle-song, or proper nursery rhyme, good Batilda, to chant to my lady's baby? The songs thou choosest for the child's lullaby are none of the most seemly for the purpose to my poor thinking.' "'I choose them not,' answered the peasant. My stock of songs, God wot, is none so large that I may pick and choose. I'm fain to sing such as I know. I care not for the sense, so that the sound serves to lull my little one. It matters not for the meaning, which is none to her, so that the tune helps her to keep quiet and to close her eyes." There's no knowing how soon a babe may catch a meaning," said the lady's maid, tossing her head. Meanings, especially naughty meanings, are sooner caught than you in your country rudeness might suppose, good Mistress Batilda. There's no telling how early a child may spy out wickedness in words. They're so cute in listening, and pretending not to understand, and all the while making out a deal that they oughtn't. There's much more of that going on than you'd think, Mistress Batilda." "'I'm a surety. Children are not the only ones to spy out wickedness, and catch naughty meanings where no harm's intended—and then making a pretence of over-innocence.—The more's the pity," replied the nurse. But as for my poor foolish old songs, I can't think they'd do mischief to any one that isn't set upon seeing more in them than's meant—let alone a sucking babe that makes out naught of the words, but the chime and the rhyme they make." "'No harm!—no mischief!' exclaimed Kroka. Why, there's that tawdry nonsense you sing about St. Valentine's Day. I should like to know what you make out of that, good Mistress Batilda." "'I leave it to you, to make out what you have a fancy for from it, Mistress Crocker,' said the nurse, quietly. "'I can only say, as I said before, no need to mind the words of my song, so that the tune soothes my baby, no call to take heed of the matter, so that the murmur pleases her. It's no matter to me, and certainly no matter to the child that can't make matter out of it." What stupid animals these country-folks are!—muttered the waiting-maid—little better than swine, in their brutish ignorance of what's what, and in their obstinate sticking to what they've once said. Let them that like to ferret out filth find what they have a mind to in my old songs, said the nurse to herself, only don't let em go and give their nasty notions to my innocent child. Who, if ever she should chance to catch up the words by and by, from hearing me repeat would only do so like a prattling starling, for the sake of the sound, and without a thought of any bad meaning. Before the little Ophelia could run any risk of learning either words or meaning of the foster-mother's songs, inasmuch as it was before she could speak, the good Batilda's office of wet-nurse ceased. She returned to her peasant family, her native country home, while Ophelia's own mother, the Lady Udra, gladly took the charge of her little girl upon herself. She had hitherto neglected to fulfil the most important maternal duty, solely from the physical cause of disability. Not long, however, did she enjoy this new delight of cherishing and watching the infant growth of her child. Ophelia was yet a little toddling thing, when her father, the Lord Polonius, received an appointment as ambassador in Paris, and was compelled to quit the Danish court for an uncertain period so distinguished an honour as this official dignity conferred upon him by his Sovereign, was a matter of high self-congratulation to the ambitious courtier, and he determined to fulfil his mission with such pomp, with such unsparing profusion of outlay, as should best prove how worthy he was, of the office for which he had been selected. He resolved that as the representative of royalty, his travelling appointment should be princely in their richness, their magnitude, and for the like reason, his household and retinue, when established in the French capital, should be of even regal magnificence. In order the better to carry out his views of making his embassy as complete a semblance of royalty as might be, he determined that his wife should accompany him, remarking that a court without a queen, an embassy without an ambassadress, were shorn of half their splendour and influence. His lady, dreading the lengthened separation from her children which this would involve, made an attempt to dissuade him from the arrangement, begging to be left behind in Elsinore with her young son and daughter, until such time as they should be old enough to travel with her, when they could all three join him in Paris together. But Polonius gave several weighty reasons why this could not be done, alleging that the first impression was the most important, that he was convinced greater effect was produced by the presence of a lady, that it attracted other ladies, that the more ladies attracted and attached, the better, inasmuch as the influence of woman's wit and woman's beauty, had ever been acknowledged to be some of the most potent agencies in a court atmosphere. Together with several other sage and worldly observations in support of his views, and ending with an intimation that in short it was his will she should go with him at first and at once without further opposition therefore to her husband's will the lady oudra prepared to obey by making arrangements for the suitable placing of her children during their parents absence for Laertes, the boy, there was the protection of his uncle, a wealthy old bachelor and retired general, who found the seclusion and repose of his armchair to be the sole refuge for which his wounds and their consequent infirmity had left him fitted. For the little Ophelia, her mother determined she should be confined to the care of her former nurse, Batilda. She resolved to risk the want of refinement in the peasant home, for the sake of its simple food, its pure air, its kindly, hearty foster-care she trusted to the child's extreme youth scarce beyond babyhood for security that she should not acquire coarse habits or imbibe unseemly notions she hoped herself to return to denmark before the time when it was necessary to begin the inculcation of principle the inspiring of ideas the formation of heart and mind meantime she thought health of body vigor of frame activity of limb the main things to be secured for her child And this, she thought, could be best done by sending the little girl to the cottage of Sigurd and his wife Batilda. She knew they had children, although they had lost the youngest—the one whose early death had procured Ophelia the wet-nurse services of the peasant—and she thought with them, her own child would be brought up in health and hardihood, in exercise and open-air pursuits, and in kindly affection, even if somewhat roughly and unrefinedly nurtured. The Lady Udra determined to place her child herself in the arms of its foster-mother. She ordered her litter, and set forth on her short journey, consoling herself with the thought that she should at least see the spot in which she was about to leave her youngest darling, where she might picture her to herself hereafter, during the long, tedious period of absence. She did her utmost to combat the sorrowful feelings, the half-defined fears that beset her as the thought of that absence pressed upon her. She strove to dwell upon none but cheerful thoughts and hopeful fancies for the future, that the present moment might remain unclouded in the remembrance of her little girl, who sat beside her, looking in her face, and asking her questions of the new places and strange objects among which they were passing. She exerted herself to entertain the child, that no suspicion of her own grief might interfere to mar the pleasure and enjoyment of this first journey, so full of delight and curiosity and interest to the little one. At length the excitement, the constant demand upon her attention, the many hours passed in the open air which made its way through the curtain of the litter, caused the little Ophelia to fall into a profound sleep. Then the lady allowed herself to drop back among the cushions, and give way to her emotions at the thought of the parting that was so soon to come, between her and her child. Weeping, and in silence, the poor mother travelled the remainder of the way, praying earnestly. All that she saw at the cottage of Batilda confirmed her, in the previous conviction she had felt, that its advantages would outweigh its disadvantages. It was a clean, wholesome place. Its inhabitants were homely, but kindly, and the Lady Udra felt that her child would be healthfully and affectionately tended—the two great requisites at her age. She found, too, that the little Ophelia's chief companion would be Jutha, the only daughter of the peasant couple a young girl of some fifteen or sixteen years of age, of the most winning appearance, gentle-mannered, sweet-tempered, and extremely beautiful. This afforded peculiar comfort to the lady-mother, as she knew how attracted children are by beauty, and how happy their existence is made by gentleness and even temper, in those who have charge of them. To Jutha, therefore, she especially recommended the care and tendance of her babe, knowing how superfluous it was to bespeak more of that which already so lavishly flowed in devoted affection towards it, on the part of the good nurse. And then the mother, assisted by these two, who were in future to supply her place, laid the sleeping babe in the rude wooden cot, and took a weeping farewell of her treasure. "'Let not the hot tears fall on the babe, my lady,' whispered the foster-mother. They'll disturb her, and they drop upon her face. A mother's tears are not to be felt without bail and smart, even by one so young. Besides, parting tears bring no good luck—they're no blessed shower to sprinkle your babe with. Let her have a kiss and a smile, and you can muster one, my lady, as a keepsake for the child, until you come back to give her kisses and smiles the whole day long, as plenty as lips can give them." An earnest pressure of the nurse's arm told how well the kindly intent of her words was understood by the lady. By a strong effort she succeeded in mastering her grief sufficiently to bestow a better omened caress upon her child. The last kiss she gave it, as it still lay in a deep sleep, was almost cheerful, for she cast her eye up hopefully, and commended her little one to heavenly guardianship. Over the face of the babe, as it slumbered, crept a soft answering smile, and then the mother, accepting the angelic token, turned silently away, and stepped into a litter, more serene at heart than she could have hoped. For some hours after her mother had left her, the unconscious Ophelia slumbered on. The journey, the passing through the air, caused her to sleep soundly, and there she remained, perfectly still, drawing soft, regular breathings, with one hand beneath the peachy cheek, the other lying plump and dimpled and white on the coarse coverlet. The rough wooden cot in which she lay had been the resting-place of all the peasant-babes born there in succession. It was rudely fashioned, but strong and safe, raised away from the ground upon high legs, which prevented the hostile approach of any wandering cat or other more formidable animal. It was furnished with bedding, coarse and homely, but clean and sweet-scented from the open bleaching. And by the care of Jutha, whose pride it was to see it always kept neat and nice, a pretty object in the family sitting-room. As Sigurd and his two eldest sons, Harald and Ivar, came in from their daily labour at eventide, they went and peeped at the little stranger who had become their inmate. Sigurd said some kind words to his wife, Batilda, of his being glad she had the little lady-babe to take the place of the one she had lost, and that it would do them both good to see the cot filled once more. The two tall lads, who looked like friendly ogres, or good-humoured giants, looked at the sleeping child as if she had been a young bird, or a half-hidden spring-flower nestling beneath a hedge. What a bit of a thing she be! She looks as easy to be blown away—easy to be looked through as sweet and as blooming as a handful of rose-leaves, don't she?" quoth Harold. "'Ay, she do,' said Ivar. She scarce looks like a baby, such as you or I once was. What a pretty creature tis! the family sat down to their evening meal, while Batilda showed her husband the purse of money and the presents the Lady Udra had given them, to take charge of her child, told him of the engagement she had made to forward them each month a sum for its maintenance, that the Lady wished them to increase their own comforts at the same time, and that in consequence, she, Batilda, had provided an extra supper for them to make a sort of feast, in celebration of her own little lady-babes coming among them. Meanwhile the infant Ophelia continued to sleep on. But as one of the good-humoured giants happened to forget himself, and give a louder laugh than he had hitherto done, the sound disturbed her. She turned, and opened her eyes, and lay awake. She was none of those fretful children, who the very first thing they uniformly do upon waking from sleep is to roar. On the contrary, she lay silent and still for a moment or two, and then, raising herself softly against the side of the cot, rubbed her eyes and looked over. It was a strange scene she beheld, quite different from anything that had ever met them before. Instead of the spacious apartment lighted by silver sconces and hung with rich tapestries, there was a raftered low room, a rough deal table, round which sat some uncouth figures on wooden chairs, eating by the light of a single oil-fed iron lamp. There was an elderly man with a weather-beaten face and grisly locks. There was an elderly woman, whose face seemed known to the child who was staring at them. There were two very tall young men with bushy beards, rough hair, and good-natured faces. There was a boy with large hairy hands, a fell of shock hair upon his head, shaggy eyebrows from beneath which gleamed a restless pair of grey eyes, and a huge bare throat that swelled and moved, and showed the big morsels which he was shovelling into his mouth, as they made their way along the gullet to the stomach. The staring baby's eyes, after dwelling some time with a kind of uncomfortable awe upon this object, saw lastly that there was another figure at the table—that of a young girl, beautiful and pleasant to look upon. The little Ophelia was still silently gazing upon all this, when the hairy boy gave a grin, mutely writhing his face, and then he pointed stealthily towards the cot, saying in a low growl, singularly harsh and discordant, though not loud,— See! Little court ladies awake! "'My baby awake, and I not notice it!' exclaimed Batilda, about to hurry towards the cot, in fear that the child would cry, and be startled at finding itself among strangers. "'Let her be a bit,' said Sigurd, laying his hand on his wife's arm, "'and let's see what she'll do. She don't seem a bit scared like at all us new faces.' On the contrary, the child seemed entertained, and continued to look from one to another, patting her hand on the side of the cot, and humming a little song to herself they all watching her the while with quiet, amused glances. By and by she drew a long breath, looked around, and said, "'Mama!' Batilda and Jutha now both went towards her, doing their best to distract her attention from the thought, which had at length evidently struck her. With the facile spirits of childhood this was no difficult task. She was brought over to the table to take her first rustic meal of bread and milk, which she did with much relish. Despite the absence of the gold service which had hitherto administered her refection, and with much apparent contentment, leaning against the familiar bosom of her nurse, frolicking and making acquaintance with the smiling beauty of Jutha, and graciously allowing the burly peasant Sigurd to curl her miniature hand round his great big horny forefinger. In short, the little lady babe seemed at once to take to her foster family, and make herself at home with them. End of Part 1